In this passage, we find a command to rejoice. It's found back in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, You might find that a bit of a surprising command. Christians being told to be happy, to rejoice, be glad. We might think, isn't religion all about buckling down, trying your hardest, and not just doing what makes you happy? Right? You might have heard of the Puritans. Likely you've heard negative things about them. If you've heard how non-Christians or even many Christians describe them, we think of things like the scarlet letter and so forth. They have a reputation for being dour, sour, gloomy, and that sort of thing. J.I. Packer has done some good work showing that that's not actually true to how they really lived and taught. But at any rate... Based on how they are talked about, we've probably heard, um, or we probably understand this quote from H.L. Mencken, who defined Puritanism in this way. Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. In our text this morning, we have the Apostle Paul speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving a command, and he is exhorting the Philippian church He's just at the end of chapter 2, which we looked at a few months ago. He put forth Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of men who showed the mind of Christ and love and how they lived their lives. Here in chapter 3, Paul gives a central command that really stands at the head of this chapter and will be repeated again in chapter 4. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. What God requires of you this morning is joy, happiness. He's calling you to joy. He's not calling you away from it. He's calling you toward it. Rejoice, he says, in the Lord. If we think that God is fundamentally opposed to our joy and happiness, we are plain wrong. In fact, we ourselves are opposed to our own joy Whenever we sin, whenever we turn from God and seek satisfaction in the things that he's made apart from him, we will be frustrated. It'll feel that something is missing, like we aren't fulfilled, we aren't satisfied. However much happiness we might draw from other things, we will find it doesn't quite go deep enough or last long enough. Ultimately, that's because we were made to know love, and enjoy God forever. God, the author of life and of all joy, the supreme one, the supremely good one, we are to rejoice in him. We are to rejoice in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the same Lord who was equal with God and came down from heaven to seek our good, to die for our sins on the cross and rose again from the dead. We are to rejoice in him And his salvation. That is the secret to the joy that Paul has exhibited throughout this letter. His joy is in the Lord. That's how he rejoices in prison. That's how he's abounding in thanksgiving. That's how he's rejoicing whether he lives or whether he dies. He rejoices in the Lord. 
So he rejoices in uh, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, I rejoice. And here in chapter 3, verse 1, he invites us to rejoice too. And he says how? In the Lord. If your joy is in the Lord, then it cannot be taken away from you. If your joy is in the Lord, then you are freed to take joy and pleasure and delight in the things of creation without idolizing them, without turning them into the end-all, be-all of your existence and loading them with a weight that they cannot bear. If you rejoice in the Lord, ultimately you are rightly oriented. You know that he is the giver behind every good gift. And if you have the giver, then even if the gifts are taken away, even if, like Job, you lose everything, you still have God. Your flesh and your heart may fail. Your friends and family may fail. Riches come and go, says the psalmist. Set not your hearts on them. God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul is about to go on and give an additional command in verse 3, but first he prefaces it by saying that he knows, I've told you this already. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He knows he's told them this before, and he's anticipating uh, what the Philippians might say. You know, why are you repeating yourself? We've heard you say this before. But he answers this by saying, well, it's no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. It's the safest course for you to actually hear what you've heard once before, to hear it again, Paul says. It's no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Repetition can be a spiritual grace and benefit. When you come to church, when you open up your Bible, what you need to hear It's not necessarily something you've never heard before. You don't need to uh, see some connection you've never seen before. It's great when that happens. But often what we need is to hear what we've heard before and hear it again and again. Paul doesn't think of himself as a kind of sensationalist who has to constantly be coming up with brand new things. Think about Paul uh, in Acts, the book of Acts, when he goes to Athens, Acts 17, and he goes to the Areopagus and all the Athenians, what are they doing all day? They spend all their time doing nothing but talking about and hearing about some new thing. And that's how we often think. We're Americans. We're all about what's new. What's the cutting edge? What's the next new thing? No, I've heard that before. I don't care about that. Paul says it's safe and beneficial for him to repeat himself and for you to hear what you've heard before. So maybe what you most need is to hear what you've already heard. Because maybe what you've heard has not fully been understood and digested. Maybe it's not fully taking root within you. Maybe what you and I need, as Martin Luther said, is to have the gospel beat into your head Continually. Maybe you need to hear again and again that you are a great sinner, but that Christ is a great Savior. What the Philippians needed to hear again is actually a warning. 
Paul writes in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So the logic of the passage is rejoice in the Lord, but look out. Rejoice in the Lord and look out for those who would seek to take that joy away from you and would have you seek that joy somewhere else. Here Paul describes those that the Philippians should be looking out for in verse 2. He gives three descriptors. First, he calls them dogs. Look out for the dogs. In the ancient world, dogs uh, like that of the pit bull were what would come to mind here. Not necessarily cute, fluffy, uh, furry, you know, uh, pet babies. I don't know what they call them these days. Uh, But uh, pit bulls, you know, disease-carrying Uh, unclean for Jews. That's why we read in scripture of dogs licking up the blood of Ahab in 1 Kings or of dogs consuming the flesh of Jezebel in 2 Kings. When Jesus says the dogs came and licked the sores of Lazarus in Luke 16, that showed just how far down he had sunken. Dogs come to signify being outside of God's covenant people. Being um, unclean, a pagan, a Gentile. We see this in the famous passage in Matthew 15, which we looked at a few weeks ago, where Jesus tells the Canaanite woman who asked to be healed, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. To which she replies, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So dogs are associated with uncleanness, viciousness, being an outsider to God's people. Even today, when we have a much more perhaps positive view of dogs and what they are, it's still not a good thing to be called a dog. And all the more so in the ancient world. Now, you might wonder, is this the same Paul who wrote uh, in chapter 2 that we should have affection, sympathy, and love, and not look to our own interests, but the interests of others? Is this the same Paul who wrote the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13? Seems a bit harsh, this language, doesn't it? But there comes a time when a harsher term or harsher word can be appropriate, especially when trying to combat error, combat false teaching. The reason he calls his opponents dogs is because he wants to highlight these people are actually dangerous. These people actually are unclean. They're going to be telling you that you're unclean, but they're the ones who are on the outside. The next descriptor, look out for the evildoers. Look out for the evildoers. They work evil. This is a common term in the Psalms for those who oppress the righteous. You have the righteous and you have evildoers. The psalmist writes, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, it is they who stumble and fall. And for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. So you have the righteous and the evildoers. These opponents are on that side. They are on the side of the evildoers. Regardless of how things may look outwardly, they're on this side. And finally, we get the final description here, which actually tells us who he has in mind and helps explain why he's using these other terms. 
He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is here giving away who he's talking about. They are those who mutilate the flesh, or more literally, uh, he says, look out for the mutilation. Look out for the concision. Beware of the mutilation. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision. Paul is describing the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who professed Christ and yet who believed the Mosaic laws concerning being circumcised, uh, abstaining clean and unclean food distinctions, observing feast days of the Old Testament calendar, that all these sorts of Jewish distinctives are still binding even on Gentile believers, Gentile converts. They've accepted Jesus, but they're still saying you have to do all these things, Gentiles. So they would even go to churches filled with Gentiles who've come to Christ, um, not from a Jewish background, but from a pagan background. So these Gentile converts would not have in their background observing feast days, food laws, being circumcised, these kinds of things. And these Judaizers would come into town and they'd say, if you are really Christians, then you need to be observing all these requirements. You need to be observing these food laws. You need to be circumcised. You need to submit to the law of Moses. In Acts 15, verse 1, we read of uh, them being described as um, those who teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it says Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them. That's Luke's way of saying a large uh, dissension, a large debate with them. And that led to the Jerusalem Council of, of Acts 15, which was about, do these Old Testament cultic laws about cleanliness, feast days, and above all circumcision still apply so that Gentiles must submit to them to be a part of Christ and his church, to be saved Paul opposed that teaching very strongly, very profoundly. In the book of Galatians, Paul addressed their teaching head on and says, if you accept circumcision, then you're bound to keep the whole law. Christ is of no advantage to you. If you rely on works of the law, you are under a curse. Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you on the cross. Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Circumcision of the flesh all along was a sign of circumcision of the heart. It always pointed to the death of our sinful nature and our living to God, our cleansing and forgiveness of sins, new life and a new birth even. So what Paul is saying is, these Judaizers are telling you, you need to be circumcised. You're not holy. You are unclean. And Paul is saying, they're the unholy ones. They're the dogs on the outside. They're the ones, they're all about do this, do this, submit to the law. But they're, they're doing evil. Legalism is a form of evil doing. And finally, he says, they're telling you, you, you need to be circumcised. 
You're looking at the circumcision. We are the circumcision. That circumcision of the heart to which circumcision of the flesh always pointed has happened to you. It's been fulfilled in and because of Jesus. He says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We worship by the Spirit of God, the promised Spirit who would circumcise our hearts, take out our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, and cause us to follow the Lord. We are those people. We serve by the Spirit. We serve as priests in the temple of the Lord, offering up ourselves, our lives, our works, our praise, all in grateful sacrifice acceptable to God, our spiritual sacrifices. You are serving as a priest in the temple of God and dwelt by the Spirit. You are the circumcision. We glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. In him we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, being buried with him in baptism, in which we were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We glory in Christ, and we don't put any confidence in the flesh. We don't glory in our own credentials, our own achievements, our own strengths, our own works, our own this, our own that. We don't put confidence in any of that. We don't boast in that. We only glory in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our boast is that we know Christ rather that we have come to be known by Christ. And notice uh, that uh, these legalistic Judaizers, they have everything backwards, don't they? They have everything backwards. They're not adequately recognizing the significance of Christ the Messiah with the result that they are They view themselves as moral crusaders going around telling everyone to obey laws, and yet they are the evildoers. They tell the Gentiles, you're unclean, you need to be circumcised, you need to obey these laws. They are the dogs, Paul says. And you are, we are, together, the circumcision. So, what can we take from this? Hopefully you've seen a number of applications along the way on your own as the Spirit works. But on one level, this is a question, because I don't think any of us deal with professing Christians swooping into our congregation, knocking down our doors, saying, are you obeying the Jewish food laws? Are you having, you know, are you observing the Feast of Booths and, and all the other Jewish feasts? Are you circumcised? Because if you're not, you can't be saved. We don't have that, do we? I mean, 
There are actually certain groups still out there that say things like that. So not the exact same thing as the Judaizers, but there are actually those who make those kinds of arguments. Uh, Ivy and I actually met a couple members of a Christian cult called World Mission Society Church of God once. Um, and they believe all kinds of weird and outlandish heretical things. But one of the things that we eventually found out that they believe uh, is that the Old Testament feasts, unleavened bread, feasts of weeks, tabernacles, trumpets, day of atonement, are all still required. And unless Christians follow them, they can't be saved. So this teaching is still out there today in a form fairly similar to what Paul dealt with. But with that said, I'm not sure we encounter many members of that you know, group or groups like that in our day-to-day lives. So we might wonder how this text would apply to us, how the warning of this text would apply to us. We should remember the big picture here. By requiring things as necessary to salvation that are in fact over and above what God requires himself, these false teachers are threatening the Philippians' joy in the Lord. But this church has all that they need in Christ. Christ himself and the salvation that he offers is sufficient. This church and we as a church can rejoice that we have Christ. We can rejoice in the Lord and stand for Christ in this world, knowing that he is enough. In what ways are you tempted to think that what you have in Christ isn't enough? In what ways... Do the world, the flesh, or the devil tempt you to think that Jesus isn't enough, that you need to add something else in? That there must be some secret to the full life, the truly blessed life, to be in God's favor other than Jesus. Whatever that is, that is a threat to your joy in the Lord. So the exhortation this morning is rejoice in the Lord. And look out for anything or anyone that would seek to take that joy and put it anywhere else. We are the circumcision. We are those who have been renewed by the Spirit, who worship by the Spirit, who glory in Jesus and put no confidence in our own works or merits, but only in Christ alone, who died for our sins and was raised for our justification as our great shepherd. Let us pray.